So lovely to be joined today by Lily Cairns Haler and Christopher Jackson from Advanced Infrastructure. And today's theme is we're going to be looking at what the real CO2 exposure is for industrials. And, and in this case, we're talking about the UK, but um, as I'm sure Lily and Christopher will agree, this applies in as concept, you know, no matter where you're based. So Lily, can I come to you first and just give us a little bit of an intro about you, how you've reached this point and uh, how you've come to be involved in the world of decarbonisation? Hi, Alex. Yeah, great to be here. Um, I'm the Chief Commercial Officer at Advanced Infrastructure. Um, and as I'm sure Chris will go on to explain, we do a lot of um, exciting work with energy data in the UK, trying to provide companies with a better picture of what their true carbon exposure is. Um, Previously to advanced infrastructure, I've worked at a number of different startups looking at data anal analytics across different sectors, um, most recently in the hotel and aviation industries. Um, but now I'm focused in on the energy sector with advanced infrastructure. And um, your original background, what, what was your, it's always one of these things that I love asking because there is such a diverse kind of academic and other backgrounds that, that end up contributing to this this issue. So what, what was your very original background? Uh, I have a research background. So I read history at Cambridge um, and then I've worked in a couple of different startups since. Great. Well, thanks for that. And Christopher, can you obviously do a similar kind of intro, but also tell us a little bit about advanced infrastructure and uh, yeah, give it a little context for this discussion we're going to have. Well, hi there. Thank you. So I'm Christopher Jackson, co-founder and CEO at Advanced Infrastructure. My background is as a physicist, but 10 years ago I entered the energy industry and then have been working in a range of technologies, including solar photovoltaics, um, battery energy storage and EV charging. And in last year, um, I led EON's decentralized energy markets team. And we were focused on bringing uh, industrial and commercial flexibility assets, such as diesel generators, standby generators, and CHPs um, into the wholesale markets to, to essentially create new revenue streams there. Um, since since leaving EON and, and to make up for my sins of all that carbon I've created, um, I, I co founded advanced infrastructure. And uh, as Lily was uh, hinting at, uh, essentially we're building digital twins of the energy system and we're connecting three layers that have traditionally been very separate. Uh, that's, the, that's the high tra transmission uh, networks of the power networks operated by the national grid, but also that the the distribution levels um, operated by local distribution network operators, all, all six of them, and increasingly the INC and residential levels. So these are the increasingly complex and interdependent energy systems that are behind the meter, um, of which um, people have very little visibility. So in constructing that this, this, this new national digital twin, we're able to uh, gain data insights and, and, and build on analysis through analyzing that, that data and processing it through models. And um, we've focused on carbon signaling um, as one of the, uh, the, the primary applications of, of this digital twin. I remember when, when we uh, first had a discussion about this, I'm going to say something which is not very helpful on an audio podcast, but we looked at something brilliant on screen, which was this kind of the, the use of energy and how it was fluctuating uh, over a period of time. For the podcast, I suppose, for the listeners, what, what, I, what I mean is it was fascinating to me because although we spend a lot of time at Decarb Connect talking about you know, CO2 and emissions, actually, we don't spend a lot of time asking people 
what they're basing their reductions on or how they're kind of comparing the work that, you know, what, what's the point of comparison that they're using for the, the forward work. So this fed into that kind of point of interest and I think, I think is useful, really useful discussion to have. So um, I'm going to start, I'll start with you, Christopher, actually, with this um, kind of first kickoff question. So obviously we're, we're here to talk about underreporting. Um, so tell me a bit about the, the background to this, you know, why should an industrial or an investor, you know, in this space, why should they care? Why does it matter? Um, and let, let's use that as our starting point. So why should uh, a corporation or an industrial care about their carbon footprint? And and the answer for that is because... Well, the accuracy of their carbon footprint. The the answer to that is, is everyone's starting to care. Um, so, so if you break it down and look at the main drivers, um, the investors... Uh, in corporations are starting to demand um, that the that the companies that they're lending to and investing in uh, satisfy ESG criteria. Uh, so that's first principle driver. Secondly, the governments are starting to care. Um, they're bringing in legislation such as um, uh, SECA, the Streamlined uh, Carbon Emissions Reporting Act, which is mandating these these types of reports and specifying how you go about doing it and the levels of accuracy. And then thirdly, from the customer point of view, they're demanding sort of visibility and transparency in the carbon uh, footprint of the products and services being delivered. And you're already seeing in, in the digital space, uh, Google and Microsoft and Amazon and other providers essentially measuring the carbon footprint of each of each byte or each, each cycle of computing that they're selling, you're, you're seeing fast-moving consumer goods adding carbon footprints to their products. And you're even seeing in the industrial sector, the carbon footprint of steel becoming an increasingly important factor as well. Um, but the challenge around accuracy is how do you precisely measure that? And we've seen what we call unsophisticated methods of doing that increasingly in um, apparent in the market um, where where offsets and other mechanisms are used to sort of claim zero carbon. And we don't think that claiming zero carbon is particularly helpful or particularly sophisticated um, because often it's not the case. It's actually not, not zero. It's, it, 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 it is a number and the effort needs to be found to identify that. And a lot of the, the methods we've been working on um, is to precisely define what that number is using more and more granular data sets. Okay, so then I'm gonna kind of build on that and sort of flip over to, to Lily. How can a kind of an accurate reporting base actually sort of support a typical manufacturer as it's looking at strategy or plans and reporting and it, what, what's, what's in it for them? And let's assume here that we're all trying to do the right thing. You know, I'm not suggesting there are lots of people out there deliberately subverting the course of decarbonisation. So let's assume the baseline of good, but what, what is in it for them to, to kind of get to this level of granularity and how can they use it? I think you're spot on in, in saying that we should assume that people are working towards the good. And I think in large part that is often true. Um, we often refer to it as accidental greenwashing as what's going on, um, that companies are trying to report. There are companies that report under SECA because it's mandatory, but there are many, many more who report voluntarily under CDP because they're choosing to. Um, and an increasing number are choosing to even go beyond the best practice guidelines of CDP and are adding things like supply chain emissions analysis into that. 
So there is a lot of goodwill and a lot of effort from companies going in to try to reduce. Um, and to circle back to your main question of what's in it for them and why do they want to do that? That's answered a lot by the companies that are already going ahead. Um, they tend to be forward-thinking um, companies that are aware of their strategic, um, long-term strategic goals and risk. So I would answer the question of what's in it for them with two points. One being your long-term carbon exposure. It's something that's going to become a, a bigger deal for companies that they're going to have to manage. The UK has already stated um, a goal to become the first country to implement the Task Force for Climate-Related Financial Disclosures, Best Practice Recommendations, into law. And companies will increasingly find themselves under pressure to report and to report accurately. So that can simply be a reputational cost. It can simply be a, a pressure from their consumers um, and from their investors. But increasingly, there's a risk that it will be a financial cost. Um, and we've seen a number of high-profile greenwashing cases in recent years that have cost companies many millions in some cases. Um, but more, more positively, um, what companies can actually get from it, there can be substantial value add um, that consumers see when you can differentiate your products. So if you have this kind of granular data, you can say with sophisticated science-based methods, you can demonstrate that this product was produced with low carbon electricity, and you can back that up with data. And you can add value by doing that. And companies can charge extra, and they will find that many consumers will pay extra for that. So for example, if you're using you know, an electric arc furnace, Christopher mentioned the value of, of carbon in steel. If you can demonstrate that the steel was produced using low carbon power, there can be a value add to that. I think that between you, thanks for that. That's a good kind of kind of point from which we can dig into the, the data product, the, the work that you're you're doing. So um, Christopher, then let talk us through. Uh, I know it's hard on an audio only scenario. You don't have the screen to show the the beautiful uh, digital twin that you've created. But talk to us about like what is that product? What does it do? And um, yeah, and how are you using data to really to really expose that kind of true, true levels of uh, carbon intensity? Well, I mean, for the benefit of the listener, what, what we showed you uh, was a map of the UK energy system, I think, in a higher level of granularity than anyone's ever seen before. And when, when we built this product, we, we wanted to locate every power station in the UK. Um, so that's around 300 fossil fuel, coal and gas power stations, uh, 2,000 wind farms, and over 1 million PV stations. Um, and we start, first started by asking the national grid, uh, do, do you know where your power stations are? And surprisingly, their answer was no, no, we don't. <laughs> um, they, they know where they connect to the grid, but they don't know where they actually are um, located in the country. So it took us a lot of time of cleaning data sets and, and, and collating this all together into the UK's most most detailed digital map of the energy system. Um, and then well, what can you do with that data once you've got it? We, we, we then um, collected the past 10 years outturn of all these power stations um, and, and collected that into the, the, uh, the system and then connected it in real time and filled in any missing data sets with, with um, synthetic data and models based upon um, 
the, the the renewable generation profile of some of these sources. So we think we've covered all bases there. Um, and that's given us a really detailed map of the energy system. And the first product that came out of that was an unprecedentedly de detailed carbon emissions map of the UK um, by nation, by region, um, by town, um, and down to even towards street level and our mission really is to get to a household level granularity of carbon emissions and to have that in real time sort of up to up to five minute resolution um, so you can precisely pinpoint at any time and location in any plug in the country well what was the carbon intensity of that power um, and in the map that you saw, we, we essentially built up a patchwork, a quilt um, of, of the different carbon in intensities with, with this very high resolution data. Um, and you can use that for many applications. If, you're, if you are industrial and commercial, you can use it to know the exact carbon intensity of the power of the products that you're building. And I mentioned some examples of companies that are starting to differentiate themselves that way. Um, we see it a lot in data centers. They also want to know this data so they can calculate the carbon uh, footprint of the compute power that they're selling as well. Um, for uh, flexibility providers who are switching on and off uh, um, INC assets, for example, they also want to know the carbon intensity uh, of the local grid that they're affecting. Um, so um, those are the applications of the specific product and there are more and more as, as we ex explore the market and, and speak to our customers. Um, and one, also it's worth mentioning that there's more than one way to calculate carbon uh, emissions and different methodologies. Uh, so we're also exploring that space as well with our customers and seeing how the different methodologies uh, really do affect um, the outcomes of what our customers are trying to achieve. Okay, useful. Th thank you for that. So now I have, if I am the, you know, Alex Cameron cement company or whatever my company is, I have access to this data. It could feed into, we'll use the phrase, a sophisticated decarbonisation strategy. But what does that mean? What does that look like? And Lily, I'm batting that one over to you. So I've got access to this brilliant set of data. I can visualise things. I've got that pinpoint level of accuracy. What, what does that do? you know how can i use that in a in a strategic way a sophisticated decarbonization strategy would be threefold one is accurate measurement understanding what your direct emissions are what your indirect emissions are those are your emissions from electricity and ideally also what your supply chain emissions are the second step would be reduction um so things that's probably where our data comes in best. This would be things like looking at what the carbon intensity is of the power that you're using and then trying to use that data to take action. So if you're a data center, um, this can involve things like load shifting. And what that means is that you can time shift your consumption of power to match up with periods when the carbon intensity of the grid is lower and avoid increasing demand on the grid when the carbon intensity of generation is high. It could also involve things like installing a suite of renewable technologies. Um, if you can afford it, things like solar panels, batteries, and being sophisticated in the choice of which technologies you deploy and what will have the most impact on the grid, what will offset the most emissions. 
Um, which brings on, I suppose, to the, the third point on your question of what would a sophisticated decarbonisation strategy look like? It's first, accurate measurement. You can't reduce what you can't measure. Second, it's reduction, using that data to take action um, in a sophisticated and cost-effective manner. And then finally, offsetting what's left, um, but doing so in a sophisticated way, either with on-site um, projects, generating renewable power that you will actually consume, or spreading out um, across a, a range of offsets, including things like um, carbon capture. Okay, and I, I think you mentioned, uh, sorry, I forget whether it was Christopher or you, Lily, who mentioned at the start that this is also about being able to, you know, I think you might have used the, the I know when we talked before the podcast, you were using the phrase, the kite mark approach, if you like, to, to be able to brand or stamp materials and products as being, uh, you know, from a, a lower carbon intensity production cycle or something like that. So can you, Lily, I'll keep with you on this one. Can you just talk a little bit more around that? Like, obviously that's one of the, cynic. if I had my cynical cap on, I would say what we need here is the reason that someone can go to, go to market. Why can you go to your boss to ask for the money to do this? Why can you go to market and then extract value from having gone through this process, right? So, so talk to us about the kite mark approach. I mean, there's a few variations in decarbonization field at the moment of people looking at this, but tell us how and why, like what is it about putting a stamp on low carbon products that, that, that is meaningful? Yeah, you're quite right, Alex. There's a whole load of different um, kite mark approaches going on. The Carbon Trust have a, a particularly wide range, um, but there are many others. So these look at things like embedded carbon of a product um, and involve different levels of life cycle carbon assessment, um, some more accurate than others. Some can be really quite sophisticated and some are, are not. Um, but you're looking at what the embedded carbon of that product was um, from, from the product, from the materials, sorry, that go into making it, the actual production processes, how far it's traveled. Um, and we would say that you should add into that an additional data point. And that's the emissions associated with the electricity used to produce that product. Emissions from electricity consumption account for about a quarter of all global emissions. So this is a substantial amount. Um, and the value of, of a kite mark that takes that into account is considerable, particularly in products that require a lot of electricity to produce. Um, Google have already brought it in on their data centers and their compute, but you can also use it in manufacturing um, any product that uses electricity um, to be produced. You can look at exactly what the carbon emissions were, even down to the, the local power stations that likely produce those. And you can tell your consumers what the carbon impact of the product was and benchmark it and show whether it was lower or higher than the industry standard. One of the big things we found is that most corporations underreport their carbon emissions by 30%. There's a 30% inaccuracy in their scope two carbon emissions because they're not using the correct data sources. Um, usually 30% inaccuracy in most business processes is not acceptable. So obviously there's, there is a nascent problem here and being aware of that inaccuracy and managing it correctly and managing the risk associated with that is really important. And it's getting to the case where week on week, there is something in the mainstream media um, about some type of greenwashing claim. I mean, this week it was focused upon energy suppliers um, and leading, I think the, the phrase was um, muddled or misguided marketing claims around green electricity. 
um, on the front page of, of, of um, the BBC News. Um, and previous weeks, it, it's been aimed at different people. It was aimed at Mark Carney, the previous uh, governor of the Bank of England, in his, um, in, in his own uh, private equity portfolio. Um, and the questions around his, his, his use of carbon offsets there. So every week there is some type of greenwashing related um, issue in the media. Um, so accuracy is really important uh, for, the, for the corporate and the business world. And in terms of the consumer world, it's, it's around having granular data to link your, your actions to local impacts. And one of the insights we got from our, our really high resolution approach was being able to tell the consumer exactly which power station they are affecting in their own personal actions. And we realized that actually for a consumer to, to know the number precisely is not as important as knowing what is the effect they're having. And for, from a consumer point of view, if, if they know that they're having the impact of reducing the, the, the outturn of a, of a gas or carbon power station, that's a tangible impact. They often get swamped in the enormity of the task of trying to reduce carbon um, at a global level, but at a, at a local level, having that type of impact is really important for them. And to provide that data to, let's say, the energy suppliers, um, so they can then pass that to the consumer is a really powerful um, proposition. I think, I mean, also coming back to the the industrial or the, the business consumer of energy, the, the more we go down the path of, I mean, I'm really stating the obvious here, I feel slightly embarrassed to say it to you, but um, the more we go down the path of assigning value to CO2, you're also missing out on value then, aren't you? You're missing out on that ability to properly show what you are achieving in your savings over time. And, and that has a that will have and does have a monetary implication for reporting. So... I think I think what we're witnessing is a new way of differentiating your products and services based around not just price and not just around the the, the brand and service offering, but also around the carbon content. Um, and that has already started. Um, there are logistics manufacturers, there are logistics providers who precisely track the carbon uh, footprint of their logistics services to a very high degree of accuracy. Um, and and they differentiate their service based on that, um, and then that's something really important to take note of. That that this is an increasingly important differentiating factor between product and services. Yeah. So we talked a little, just sort of jumping back to how people use the data. We we've talked about the fact that it might allow a client of yours to be more flexible in how they view their manufacturing operations, for example, or uh, to shift the kind of points in time when they're really consuming the most energy and, and so forth. But if we uh, turn that around a little, and, and if you have a think about the people that you're working with, what sorts of actions are you seeing? Not what's possible, but what are already some of the actions that people are choosing to take as the result of accessing this kind of data? So an interesting one is with um, investors and operators of batteries and storage assets. At the moment, if you want to look at the carbon impact of a battery, um, to maybe evidence the business case to an investor or to get community support, um, you can go to Bayes and they will give you a very rough way of calculating the carbon emissions that isn't very impactful and isn't very widely used. Um, so one of the things that we've developed is we've developed a product that looks at a battery um, location in the grid and looks at its generation profile 
and considers the emissions factors of the grid and the impact of that battery on the emissions of the grid. And this means that you can quantify historically and in real time how much um, what the grid emissions are offset by the battery's um, operation, and you can ensure that the battery isn't increasing demand on the grid when fossil fuel power is generating and having an actual net increase in emissions, which is possible um, and does happen. So this is one of the ways that the companies are using this already. All right. And I guess my, my kind of wrap up question is, is really just to get a sense from you about where next I get the sense that this is, I'm sure it's been a, a very intense period of time developing the digital twin product, but what's next for this type of approach of using data? Like, do you have um, other models or other ideas that are sort of close to fruition or are you looking more at expanding internationally? Tell, tell me a bit about what next and I'll, I'll put that to Christopher. Indeed, we're doing both. We're we're building better, more detailed digital twins, and we're adding additional services on top of that. And an area we're particularly looking at are industrial consumers and large energy consumers who have significant energy load and who are essentially deploying uh, energy efficiency and low carbon measures across a large portfolio. Um, and using the, the digital, digital twin to analyze and optimize the way in which that's done. Um, so if you are a portfolio manager, an energy manager of uh, a large campus, a large industrial site, or a highly distributed, let's say, um, retail op op operation, um, this, these types of products help you identify which sites to, to attack first. Um, having very local average and emission, uh, average and marginal emissions factors, as well as as detailed knowledge of the grid and how that's developing over the next years, allows you to to essentially target where your energy efficiency and low carbon technologies should be deployed, and to better understand the costs and benefits and the impacts on the electricity grid, and to communicate that to the local distribution network operators. Um, to ensure that they invest alongside your strategic needs. Um, so that's a really interesting uh, um, product that we're developing, which is really linking essentially the distribution operators and the transmission operators with the needs of large businesses. And yeah, of, of course, the intention is to expand that internationally as well to, to, uh, to serve our, our customers in, in the EU and the US as well. I'm, I'm very excited about that. Yeah. Um, Lily and Christopher, thank you so much uh, for joining today. I, I really think um, I think that's a really interesting lens on decarbonisation for our listeners, because, again, we tend to make a lot of assumptions about, you know, people setting targets against that original number. But if that original number is 30% off then then we you know both have an opportunity to create more value but also you know a lot a, a very different work process that that needs to be done so thank you very much thank you very much alex pleasure thank you